Hi there, I'm Karen Dunn of KMD Productions. From the equipment manufacturers to the engineers to the business people behind the scenes, over the years, every member of the pro audio corner of the music industry has become family to me, and it's my job to bring the whole eclectic crew together. Each episode, I'll introduce you to one of these characters and open a window into my world of creating community in pro audio. Thanks for tuning in to One and Done. Hi, today we have engineer, mixer, producer, Joe Ticcarelli. Joe, we've known each other for a, a long time. We were just talking about this. I think I think maybe we met maybe originally at one of the um, village Grammy parties. Could be village or could be through uh, Audio Technica oh, or yeah. something like that. But it's it's a while. It's a while. Yeah, <laughs> we yeah. won't go into numbers. <laughs> <laughs> but it's really good to see you. I always um, you too. Absolutely. I always love catching up with you when we see each other. Yeah, in the the pre-pandemic years, it was always AES or NAM right. or maybe a trip to San Francisco for some reason or other. Yeah. Well, we'll have to do that again. Absolutely. So as music always, was it a thing in your family when you were growing up? Was music always around? How did you get drawn into that? Um, you know, uh, my family were not musicians, but they loved music. There was always music in the house. Even my grandmother loved opera. And I uh-huh. remember as, as being a little kid, being fascinated by uh, her playing, uh, you know, Caruso or whoever mm-hmm. it was or, around the house. And um, so, you know, when I became a teenager, 13 or something, I, I picked up a guitar and started playing guitar and bass. And, you know, I had my years of playing in bands and all and eventually moved out to, to L.A., got a job as a, a, an assistant engineer and just kind of worked my way up from there. You had a cousin that had a studio in Boston, right? Yes, yes. I, I, I um, When I first got into music and was fascinated with recording, uh, I happened to talk to my parents about it one day and they said, you know, you have a second cousin that <laughs> owns a studio. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. So, you know, as a, as a teenager, I kind of uh, went over there and hung out and would bother the uh, engineer and ask if I could hang out during sessions and, you know, eventually got my band to go into the studio and do demos there. And so, yeah, I was just really fascinated. You know, I was like the kid that always um, looked at uh, liner notes and was oh, fascinated with who played on the record or who produced it or engineered it. So I, I was kind of always, I had a thing for the, the sort of the making of, of music, you know, even um, when I played in bands, I was always curious about the guitar player's sound or mm-hmm. the overall sound of the band and was kind of conceptualizing, you know, w- what the music should be. So I, I kind of always had a um, more of an interest in the behind the scenes than actually being a performer. That's pretty interesting because it seems like most people want to be in a band. And then if that doesn't work out, then they decide they're going to go behind the scenes. Yeah, I went right for the fallback. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think drew you to that so much? Uh, You know, I think it was just um, I wanted a artistic, I don't know, just yeah, lack of... uh, I wanted to be a painter when I was a little kid. I always uh-huh. wanted to, to paint and sculpt and was really into art. And 
Um, my parents were wise enough to know that if I chose that as a career, I would probably be broke and coming to them for money all the time. <laughs> uh-huh. And, and uh, you know, definitely persuaded me to choose something else. So I think as a way to get back at them, I, I just said, OK, I'm going to join a band <laughs> and play guitar <laughs> and uh, just kind of got interested in music from there. Yeah. So you worked in Boston, a couple of different studios, and then you decided to pick up everything and move to L.A. Yeah, you know, at the time, Boston was a very like, you know, any secondary market. It was a very small scene. And um, I just knew that um, I had kind of uh, seen everything, done everything I could possibly do there. And, you know, really where the, all the music that was being made that I idolized and wanted to be part of. Most of it was taking place in in California and uh, New York. And uh, at the time, a lot of my friends were moving to New York City. So I sort of felt like if I moved to New York, I would fall in with the same group of people and I really wouldn't be challenged. So um, I had a couple of friends that had moved to L.A. and I came out here, um, slept on a couch and knocked on studio doors and eventually got a gig. That's a huge change. You're going forward in something you don't know if it's going to work, right? Yep. So what was the driving force that you were able to do that? Just pick up your life and move it to the unknown? Um, It's kind of what I had always wanted to do. I just really believed that to some degree I could make it happen and there was more opportunities out here for me. So I think the fact that I had one or two people that I knew that had moved out here mm-hmm. and seemed to be doing well, um, I thought, okay, why not? I can do this. So you ended up with a job at Cherokee. Mm-hmm. How many studios did you have to knock on and drop wow. off? Wow. Good question. I, I I think I must have gone to Kinko's two or three times <laughs> printing up resumes. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, a, a lot, a, a lot. But you know, the, like the time times are were different then. I mean, that's what you yeah. did. Now you basically work in your bedroom, and you know you learn the technology and, and music on your own, and build your career from there. And you know, the only way anybody actually made a record or released music was to go in a professional studio. Mm-hmm. It was very rare for anybody to have the proper equipment to um, put out music. You know, in their 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 home. It was just the the technology was not affordable. So you kind of had to have a studio. So um, that was the road I had to take. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I I knocked on a lot of doors. In fact, um, when I got the Cherokee interview, the day that I went into the studio to drop off my resume, I was very lucky in that the owner of the studio was just passing by the receptionist desk when I uh, uh, dropped off my resume. And, you know, he just said, let me see that, you know, took a look at it and went, come here, talk to me for a second. So he took me in his office and basically said, look, you know, I I don't have any openings right now, but there may be a changeover in personnel here in a couple of weeks and I can let you know. And sure enough, he did. And two weeks later, I I had a gig and, you know, it was great for me because I was really thrust into um, this professional situation which was at a level much higher than I had ever seen in my life you know when I the first sessions that they put me on were all the a-list of studio musicians from wow. Jeff Beccaro and Larry Carlton uh-huh. and um, you know Steve Cropper and all, all all the guys that were like the, the top 
And that was just like the average day. That was just another wow. day at the studio. Wow. You know, and it was always that level of, of talent. And that's how I got to meet Etta James. It was one of the first albums that I worked on as a, wow. an assistant engineer. And um, I had known her name and maybe knew Tell Mama or At Last, or, you know, but yeah. really wasn't that familiar with her. So to be in the studio with that kind of singer and realize like, Whoa, this is the bar. This is this is like just another singer. It's like, you know, at, at Cherokee, it was such a popular studio at the time, especially for all the UK artists, because mm -hmm. um they had tried Nay Range consoles and all the UK artists when they came over to LA to record, they were familiar with Trident, so they were very comfortable there at the studio. But you mm -hmm. know, on a Given day, it could be Rod Stewart, the Bee Gees, Barbara Streisand, Hall on Oates, uh, you know, Etta James, uh, uh, you know, just just really it was like, okay, who's in Studio A today and who's in Studio B today? So you were around that level of talent all the time. Okay, I would have been totally intimidated to start. I, I, think, I think I was so young and so naive that I really wasn't. Mm -hmm. um, and plus, they worked you so hard then. Uh, you were working, you know, 100 hours a week. So uh, I think you were just exhausted most of the time <laughs> and just were trying to stay, you know, try to just do your gig properly that you didn't have the mm -hmm. chance to be good, yeah. kind of intimidated by anybody. It seems like, I think you're like podcast number 20 or something, but it seems like majority of the people that have, I've talked to in the podcast, that they have the skills, but a lot of their first jobs or even jobs after that have to do with luck and timing. So My entire career has been luck. Uh, I mean, uh, the, and uh, honestly, I, I think, you know, it's just falling into situations. You know, I often think that um, sometimes it's just being a part of a scene and being swept away with that scene when that scene comes into vogue. And, you know, like I say, I was lucky at the time that that studio there was you know, maybe the most popular studio in LA or that mm -hmm. record plant, maybe, I, I'm not sure. So um, there was a lot of activity there. And um, I don't want to repeat the story too much in depth because I've done it in other interviews, but, you know, I, I lucked out and got a gig with Frank Zappa through the studio. Yeah, I was going to ask studio. you about that. Yeah. yeah, it was just one of those things where, you know, his engineer couldn't make the session and uh, I worked with him. And, and I think because I wasn't intimidated and because I was very honest with him about, you know, what I felt about the music or what he needed to do or, um, you know, he was really great and open and trusting with me and that he asked for feedback all the time. And mm -hmm. he wanted somebody that contributed and really, you know, took part in the music. And I wasn't shy about it because I think I didn't know that much about uh, his music. I mean, had it oh, been hi. David Bowie or Lou Reed or somebody that I might have idolized at the moment, I might have been, you know, not as composed. But um, I think in the case of Frank, where, again, I, I knew his name and some of his music, but wasn't mm -hmm. intimidated, that uh, I could offer honest feedback. And I think he really appreciated that. And basically, you know, I continued working with him and probably did six or eight albums. He would record so often that... Mm -hmm. um, you never knew what was going to get turned into an album and what wasn't. And so, you know, his family has got archives beyond archives of all his recordings. And I'm sure there's a dozen sessions that uh, I was part of that never got released. Yeah.
How unique is it that he asked for feedback from you and actually, I would assume, listened to it and and used what you were saying? Um, You know, in general, I mean, I think any wise artist wants input from the outside. All of us need it in our lives. I mean, I think, you know, perspective is everything. Objectivity, it's so crucial. It's really easy in the studio to get so down deep in inside what you're doing that you do lose that perspective. So sometimes it's just somebody coming in from the outside that really isn't a part of the process and doesn't have anything to lose that can offer you some kind of input. So I think, you know, staying up objective and clear um, about what you're working on is is really, really crucial. In fact, I'll just give you an immediate example of just the other day. I'm working on this um, album for this really great singer-songwriter, Liz Brasher. She's out of Memphis, was on Fat Possum, and um, really strong voice, really cool songs, a little bit retro, but yet very modern, very alternative. Um, and I was just, you know, comping a lead vocal and just, you know, working at it for a couple of hours and then finally finished it up that night. And, you know, it was late at night. I wasn't sure of it, um, if it was good or bad, but came in the next morning when I wasn't immersed in the, the details of it mm-hmm. and listened to it objectively. Perhaps I didn't have my coffee yet and you know, listened to it <laughs> like I might be listening to something on the car radio, you know, uh-huh. and instantly heard the vocal performance and went, wow, this is great. And then, you know, she came in later, an hour later, and I played it for her. She was like, wow, I love this. I'm really happy with this (laughs) performance. This is great, you know? So, you know, it's, you can't help but, you know, be concerned about every little facet of a performance or a sound or just just the music in general. And, and, um, you know, having that ability to step away is really important. What do you do if the artist has a certain vision of what they want and it doesn't really match what you think it should be? Well, that's a good question because it's something that I've learned that I really need to be clear with before I enter the studio. Usually the way the process works is that when an artist calls you or you're introduced to an artist about possibly working with them, that, you know, you'll meet with them and sit down and, um, you know, have a chat and find out what they're looking to do with the the current record. And and I'm really good. I do my homework. I listen to the demos. I make my notes. I listen to their past albums, if they are, have past albums, and are really... Um, kind of i try to get an understanding of who they are what they've done in the past what i think their strengths are what i think their weaknesses are and you know i bring all that into the conversation and Mm -hmm. um try to really get a deep understanding of what the artist is do wants to do with this upcoming recording and if it's something i don't agree with i mean i'll tell them what I feel I think they should do or shouldn't mm-hmm. do. Um, and if it's something that I think they're way off the mark or, or my particular perspective on it is way off the mark, then I'll just say, you know, look, uh, uh, I would love to work with you, but perhaps this isn't the album. Maybe mm-hmm. I need to make album number three with you instead of album uh-huh. number two, you know? And so it's really, really important that everybody's on the same page. And, and yeah, I try to uh, really be clear about that. In fact, I'll, I'll give you an example. Years ago, I did an album with 
with Jason Mraz. And when his manager called me to work with Jason, I, I just said, hey, Bill Silva, uh, I said, Bill, I'm flattered that you called me, but, you know, I'm not the sort of uh, of-the-moment pop producer that makes the typical thing that's going to come out on the radio might be a huge hit but you know really doesn't have a lot of longevity it's of the moment and that's just not what i like to do you know i don't like to um, I, I just like to craft things specific for the artist and so he said you need to talk to jason because that's exactly what he doesn't want and i went about it did my research listened to really thought about a lot of his songs and his voice and uh we we met and you know i said i see you as this real classic singer songwriter i think mm -hmm. that some of your songs are really could be long-lasting standards that are like a Paul Simon or a Billy Joel. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, you should do something that is honest and organic and classic and about the musicianship and the songs and your vocal and backing vocals and, you know, doesn't need all the au courant pop bells and whistles. Mm -hmm. um, he said, wow. He said, that's exactly what I want to do. I want to do something that's real and that's about the players and people in a room. And I said to him, you know, I even think about, you know, Paul Simon's uh, recordings with all the Muscle Shoals um, rhythm section, the the Rhyme and Simon, uh -huh. uh, all uh, Kodachrome, and all those those records that, that our dear friend Phil Ramon uh, mm -hmm. made. And um, you know, I said that's what I think you should do, and he was just kind of knocked out. He said, "Wow, you know, that's exactly what I want to do, and you're really the first person that's." got it and understood it and so we went about making a record um but you know had i not taken the time did my research really thought about it and you know sort of had a clear picture of where i wanted to go with it that might not have happened so you've worked with a really diverse list of clients and though i was looking at your list for you know just last year the year i mean you're constantly busy what do you think it is about you that artists are coming to you, whether it's when you began your career, whether it's, you know, it's a Bon Jovi or Elton John or some of the more recent artists. What are they looking for and why do they want you? Uh, I don't know. I, I, I work cheaply. I, I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. Um, uh, uh, you know, uh, seriously, I, I, I'm not sure. Uh, you know, I, I just really try to do what I feel is is right for the artist. You know, I, I've never felt that it's my record. Um, I've always felt that, you know, as a listener, as a kid that grew up loving music, that, you know, you, you want to dive into this universe that this person has created, just like a great writer or a great mm -hmm. painter or cinematographer that, you know, they're creating something that is just singular. And um, to me, that's really the key is, you know, doing something that sounds like that artist and that doesn't sound like any other artist. Like I said earlier, it's not really uh, of interest to me to make something that sounds like somebody else's current pop hit. It's mm -hmm. just, I don't, it's, I don't know, I don't know why. It's been and done. You know, it's uh -huh. about the, the, the future and, and possibilities and, and something new and something that um, sort of stretches things and challenges people. Um, so it's really important to me that every album I do has its own unique 
character and and sound. And I, I really think a lot about that down to, you know, not using the same microphones or whatever mm-hmm. it is on a record and, and not approaching it the same way. Or one record is a lot drier and less reverb than another record. And one is all about the ambience. And, and um, so I, I really think like I want to make something that is just who this artist is or wants to be and how they want to present it. So that's more work on your end, right? I mean, if you want something totally unique for each artist, then it's not like you're going to take something that you use recording the last artist that worked really well for that artist and just transfer it to the new artist. Yeah, I wish it were that easy. (laughs) It would be definitely make life a lot easier, sessions a lot quicker. Uh, No, I I really try... to really think about the artist and, you know, and it's down to even, you know, if it's a, uh, an artist that you have to hire musicians for, I mean, I really think about, you know, casting the musicians, you know, getting mm-hmm. the right players for the right um, artist and, and not just players that, you know, sometimes it's um, everybody at times in their lives wants and needs different things. And sometimes I might be talking to a studio musician and, you know, I'd say, you know, uh, I'm bored. I really want to do a project that's way more R&B, way more groove oriented. Mm-hmm. And I really need to get out of this space that I'm in. And something comes along and you're thinking, okay, I'm doing a more groove oriented record. You know who would be great for that? Hi. This guy really wants a challenge. So you know, it's putting together a team of people that you think might be really um, influential on this particular album. So, um, yeah, I think everything is just a, a, a unique experience. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, you're using different compressors, different vocal mics, different drum mics. What You're recording drums in a different way. Sometimes you might use... 15 mics and sometimes you might use four mics and Mm -hmm. sometimes they're dead sometimes they're live what was your biggest takeaway from working for that long with uh, zappa what did you take away and that you still use today with all your recordings couple of things Uh, the best thing was that there are no rules Frank always liked to break the rules he always Mm -hmm. wanted to do something that was unconventional he always wanted people to sort of stand up and take a listen. Um, He definitely didn't want anything that was conventional and pop. In fact, he he used to (laughs) tease me. He was upset at me when the first album I did with him, he had his first pop single, you know, radio track. And he was pissed at me. (laughs) He blamed it on me. You know, he he thought I kind of ruined his career because he had a successful record. But um, but to answer your question, yeah, I I think with him, it was about really breaking the rules, being unconventional, doing things at every moment that were different and sounded different and um, really caught your ear. You know, I I think prior to that, you know, I I was maybe, you know, just listening listening to a lot of mainstream rock and pop and Mm -hmm. didn't listen to a lot of uh, perhaps avant-garde or um, fringe artists. And I think Frank opened me up to a lot of more experimental and and challenging music. Um, So that was really, really great. And uh, yeah, I mean, I I remember, uh, I think at the time, I might have felt like from all the engineers I had seen work in the past and the people that 
tutored me that there were there were ways to record. There was mm-hmm. methods that mm-hmm. were proven, and there was a science to it. And I think the one thing he taught me is that just throw all that stuff away. That you know the the only critique he would ever say of my work was that um, it was too clean. It was too good. It was too, you know, he'd always say, you know, you got to fuck it up, you mm-hmm. know, just make it sound stupid. It doesn't sound stupid, you know, <laughs> meaning that, that it doesn't sound wrong. It mm-hmm. sounds correct. And I learned that correct is, is equals boring, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So you, you've really got it take some chances and every little thing has to have personality even even um you know just my head's in and doing lead vocals at the moment so you know just just thinking last night comping another vocal how there are were little kind of quirks in the vocal like little gasps of air or Mm -hmm. little odd phrasing things that could when you take them just with that little two second phrase that they are they could be taken as mistakes, but when you look at it in the whole scheme of the song, it actually adds to the personality and the character mm-hmm. of the singer. You know, I had the fortune of uh, doing two, three projects with Jack White, and Jack is brilliant at preserving um, mistakes. He loves things that sound real and that catch your ear. And even if they kind of tweak you the wrong way and make you think there's something incorrect here, um, he loves that the idiosyncrasy of it and and the quirk and the fact that it really did catch your ear. I I love things like some of the Frank Sinatra albums where you can hear something and it's the drink he has in his hand, it's the glass... (laughs) You know, or like old Billie Holiday where she's, you know, just the the mistakes, I think, add just more to the overall feel of it. Yeah, it it feels emotional. It feels human. It feels alive. Yeah. Sinatra is the best example. Uh, um, Yeah, it's those weird moments of phrasing where you just wonder, did he lose the beat there for a second? Because he's so far behind the beat or whatever it might be that that it does. It makes it more human. And and, um, yeah, you remember it, you know? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So everybody's going to fail. People are going to make mistakes. So what do you think it's been your biggest failure and how did you either fix it, overcome it, make it so you could move on to the next thing? Because a lot of people get they fail and they just want they want to be done. You know, they it's hard to move forward after that. Um, Tell you maybe my biggest failure and my biggest revelation. uh, There was a period where I was really, really busy and was making three albums at the same time. And basically, it was kind of working two weeks on one record, then two weeks on another, and two weeks on another. And this wasn't by design. It was just people's touring schedules and Mm -hmm. everything just were crazy. And I I was going back and forth with these records. And I also, at the time, I I feel like I was very, very uh, specific and hands-on with all the musicians I was working with, whether they Mm -hmm. were studio musicians or in a band. I I think I was very specific about suggesting parts to people and, you know, note for note, melody for melody. And um, anyways, after I finished those three albums, they all kind of wrapped up around the same time and they all were Mm -hmm. being mastered around the same time. So I had to sit and listen to all three of them to 
prove the mastering. Mm -hmm. And I realized the similarities in the records, and I realized how much I was sort of dictating parts to the players. And um, I was so hands-on that I wasn't giving people enough freedom mm -hmm. to be themselves, you know, and it didn't matter if the record was good or bad. Mm -hmm. It's just I, I heard uh, my influence on the record and I felt like, wow, I'm stifling people and I'm also running the risk of making uh, an album that sounds like a producer's album mm -hmm. and that's the last thing I want to do I don't want to have a sound or a stamp or something that that uh, you know is is indeed of the moment and um, you know has a five-year lifespan and mm -hmm. that's the end of it and that's the end of your career as well no matter how successful it might be you know there are Right. You know, from Phil Spector on, we can name a, a lot of uh, different record makers that have had, you know, major runs, but they've been only in that time period. And then, you know, people are on to the next. So right. I was kind of fortunate in I really had that moment to have to sit and listen to those masterings that I, I, I heard that and I, I just made it a point from that day on that I was going to be sort of much more hands-off with everything that I do. I told this story before, but I was really fortunate when I was 20-year-old assistant engineer working on a couple of albums with Jerry Wexler producing. And I was kind of initially blown away because Jerry was like so quiet and hands yeah. off and he he was you know ordering lunch for people and cracking jokes and really wasn't you know telling anybody what to play or how he wanted the song to be or whatever he was just kind of letting it all happen and mm -hmm. one day there was one particular track that wasn't happening it wasn't clicking in the studio and he just simply in conversation not even specifically saying hey what if we made the song sound like this? He didn't do that at all. He just he just mentioned an artist in a song. As if just we're just talking, we're ordering lunch, and he just threw that out there. Uh -huh. And you know, the next thing you know, twenty minutes later, people are starting to play something that's kind of in the vein of that song he mentioned. And it was perfect. And you would never, if I if I played you the original song that he quoted and what the track ended up being, you would never even see the comparison. Uh -huh. But he did this in such gentle, uh, roundabout way that um, he just put it out there in the, the world, just kind of planted the seed and let it happen. And, and as a result, a ship that was about to sort of crash didn't yeah. crash. And he got a great track and no one felt like they were being kind of muscled into no, something or uh, they felt like they had their space to come up with uh, something that was their own. It was pretty amazing. And I, it took me a minute to sort of figure out what had gone down over this half hour, hour. But when I did, it was quite a revelation. Yeah, that's a great story. And it seems like that's one of the things that you definitely do now all the time, right? I know. I really try. And, and uh, you know, I'll, uh, I'll be very vague uh, 
um, you know, when I when I suggest things to people and deliberately so. And if for some reason they're not understanding what I'm talking about, then I'll be more specific. But mm-hmm. uh, sometimes I feel like with anybody that's creative, if you suggest something very specific, be it a melody or a sound or whatever, sometimes all you get back is just what you suggested. And that's mm-hmm. it. Yeah. But if you just do it in a very vague roundabout way, they get the essence of, of what you're talking about and they make it their own. They own mm-hmm. it. They're more excited about it. They're more passionate about it. And they deliver something that's way more unique and much better than, you know, you could think of on your own because uh-huh. it's, it's their flavor. It's their character. So you started off primarily as an engineer, and then you expanded into becoming a producer and a mixer. So why did you decide to do that? And what was that transition process like? Uh, I think that was just the way the business worked at the time. I mean, I think, you know, when, when I, I had bands as a kid and all, I was always kind of um, producing them, if you will. I uh-huh. was sort of like kind of always concerned about the big picture, if you will. Mm-hmm. I wanted my role to be more than just a guy that played the bass. And so I was always doing that. But the way that um, you kind of broke into producing was through engineering. You know, if you look at the people at the time, the Alan Parsons or Phil Ramone or uh, Bob Claremountain or, um, you know, they, they all sort of started as engineers. So that was sort of the route that everybody took at the time. You worked at a studio, you, you know, garnered some great clients because they were coming into that studio and you engineered for them and then maybe you co-produced for them, et cetera, et cetera. Like I said earlier, the variety of artists you've worked with and your credits is just amazing. I saw that you worked on the soundtrack for Saturday Night Fever, which is, I don't know why that one stuck out, but it's like, oh, I love that when I saw it. But I didn't realize that, so you've won 10 Grammys, which I did know, but that seven of them are for Latin music. Yes. Yeah. Uh, no, I've been really fortunate. Uh, a lot of this came from my connection with uh, Gustavo Santalaya, who's an amazing uh, film composer, artist, record producer, a dear friend and super talented guy. And so we've done probably uh, God, a dozen albums together. Him and Anibal Carpell are his uh, producing partner. Uh, we've all made records together where I've mixed for them, produced for them, uh, and engineered for them and uh it's a great team over the years so yeah I w- i've been really fortunate um to work with you know juanes and julieta venegas and and um most importantly cafe Tacuba. who uh, if you don't know them they're to me you know people have said they're the radio head of latin america or, uh-huh. or people compare them to beck they're real innovators they're real um chameleons they're they're shapeshifters they try different things with every album they're like frank zappa they're not afraid of anything they're absolutely fearless they will do an album that is you know like traditional music and then the next album it'll be all blown up industrial sounding Uh music and that sounds great yeah they're amazing i mean they and they incorporate their latin roots into modern alternative pop music and it's like 
just, I, I love the cross-pollinization of genres and styles and that's really, really exciting to me when somebody can kind of incorporate some sort of traditional element into mm -hmm. something that's uh, maybe a, a dance track or an electronic uh -huh. music track. But then all of a sudden you hear bagpipes in it or something uh -huh. that's unexpected. You know, that to me, that's really great. That's really I, I love uh, stretching things. I love that sort of um, odd element that. What's the expression? Square square peg in a round hole. Right. That thing yeah. that doesn't quite fit, but yet it does. And uh -huh. it, it catches your ear and it makes you remember the record. It's the thing we were talking about earlier, like those flaws, those moments that shouldn't be there are the things that ultimately make something um, just stand the test of time. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know, I'm, I'm flashing on David Bowie now and, uh, you know, some of Tony Visconti's great contributions uh -huh. and, yeah. you know, with the weird harmonized piano or uh, whatever it might be, the great vocal sound, the things that just initially sound wrong and you go, what is up with that? It's the thing that makes you remember the record. So when you work with someone like Joan Baez or I'm looking through your credits, Pat Benatar, Poco, Romeo Voigt, they're all so different. Does it take you like a second just to be able to readjust to the new new artists? Absolutely. You know, I mean, one thing, you know, when you're young and you're just getting your start as an engineer, you work on whatever comes your way and right. you learn to adapt to it and do the proper thing for that style of music. Mm -hmm. And, you know, every every sort of genre, every style has elements that are really, really important important to it, whether it's, uh, I don't know, country music where the song and the story, I should say, has to really come through, right. or it's industrial music where it's about the intensity and the energy and the uh, tension of it. So it's really great in that you really learn a lot of things about a lot of different styles of music and what the priorities are, and, and it, I think, helps you later in life. But yes, you do definitely uh, have to sort of put a different hat on, a different suit of mm -hmm. clothes on for every project uh, because of that. And it does take you a little bit to kind of sink into the driver's seat and do it properly, you know. But the good thing is that what you learn from some of the other styles of music, you sort of subconsciously um, incorporate into what you're doing. So in the end, it actually helps you make a more unique record for that artist that mm -hmm. um, you're working on. So in 2020, you worked with Morrissey, The Jacks, Half Moon Run, Taylor Jansen. 21, you worked with The Districts, Half Moon Run, Lily. You've been in this business for a while. What do you do to stay creative and current to attract these artists that are out now? I mean, I'm listening to music all the time. I'm always checking out what's new. I mean, it's important to me to, to sort of, um, I don't know, find something that's different, somebody that's really uh, kind of doing something that's fresh. So I'm always checking out new artists. I'm always on all kinds of websites, listening to things, just even if it's 10 seconds of an artist, just to see mm -hmm. what people are doing, what the trends are. Yeah, I definitely. Um, I'm curious. I've always been that. You know, I've always, uh, I was always like the kid in school that 
would find some new music and had to turn their friends onto it. Uh-huh. You know? yeah. You're just like, wow, I just heard that you got to hear this. I, I think you'd like this. You know, I know what you like and I think you'd like this band. And, you know, so I'm, I'm still like that. I'm always like that with, with anything, be it a, a, a new artist or a new restaurant. You know, I'm, I'm always curious. Uh, it's just part of who I am. And, yeah, uh, of late, I've gotten to work with a lot of great artists. Um, Liz Brasher, who I just mentioned, the Districts, who are a band from Philadelphia. They're great. Rob uh, Groth, the lead singer, is a really wonderful writer who I think is just starting to hit his peak now. Uh, I think that that band is really, really going to do some great stuff. Um, I just finished an album for this band from Canada that uh, I think are great, called Blue Stones. It's a two-piece band that are, mm-hmm. they definitely rock but they have a great sense of groove even though some of the beats can be a little complex at times everything really grooves and is kind of dancey but at the same time it's like a two-piece rock band so there's certain things you can do and certain things that you have to do if you're a two-piece to keep the energy big and alive so you can't get too intricate with the parts but they managed to like really come up with hooky danceable tracks but at the same time really kind of fresh fresh beats uh-huh. really really talented guys so um that uh i did a record for a really great new artist percy howard um who kind of came out of the new york city uh bill laswell material uh sort of underground mm-hmm. uh real left of center artist but he's got this beautiful angelic voice and really really great uh storyteller fantastic artist so yeah there's been a a lot of things of late uh and again everything is a little different because to me i don't know artists are different you know and yeah and and you you, want to do something that not only is challenging to them but you as a as a music maker you know i can't i don't want to get stale i always want to try different things and push myself and you know see what else i can do you know yeah i've been lucky because through my career i've you know i've had conversations with you or ed or you know Elliot, any of those, and and to find out what they're working on, and it might be an artist I'd never heard of or had never listened to. And I also have talked with a lot of front of house live sound guys, and so they tell me about different artists. So every time I hear, I go and get it and listen, and it's really expanded what I listen to. Yeah, I don't like all of it, but it's always interesting for me to hear what you like and what or what you're working on. So I say, okay, let me go check that out. So I think I'm really lucky that way. Absolutely. No, I love it. I mean, that's kind of one of the fun things uh, for me, like working with young bands, because they'll come in and, you know, talk about a uh, hundred gecks or wh- whatever band they're, they're into at the time. And so I instantly go and check it out, you know? Yeah, yeah. My youngest son is 25. Mm-hmm. And so he will let me know about music he thinks is really that's cool. That's great. Yeah. That's great. So if there are students listening to this right now, and they, they decide they want to be you, they want to have a God career forbid. like you've had. <laughs> what what kind of tips would you offer them to be able to achieve what you have or something similar? 
Uh, you know, you definitely have to uh, learn a little bit about uh, the technology, a little bit about music, a little bit about business, a lot about psychology. You know, working with people is the most important thing and being able to handle different temperaments at different times in their careers. Um, that's really, really, really important. I also think, um, you know, people make the mistake sometimes of only working on the kind of music that they like mm-hmm. and they exclude other opportunities. And like I was saying earlier, I think you really learn a lot when you work outside of perhaps your field of expertise. And I think that's a really great way to expand yourself creatively by jumping into worlds that you don't know anything about. But you have to be willing to take that risk, yes. right? Because it's always yeah, you're out of your yes, comfort zone. Yes. And right. I think that's what I'm getting at. And I, I think that uh, even if, if, I, if you want to wind it all back to where I started, you know, working uh, with, with Frank Zappa and the times that I might have gotten questioned about what I was doing, it's that maybe I was in my comfort zone too much, you know? And that's mm-hmm. kind of what he mm-hmm. was trying to say to me. It's like, you know, you got to dive into the deep end of the pool. Um, so, yeah. Something that's really important to me is this, this community, this pro audio community. I, I love people in this community and I ask all the guests on the podcast, what does community mean to you? And it, everybody has a different answer. So I'm, I'm asking you, what does community yeah, mean to you? Uh, that's really a, a wonderful thing to, to bring up, Karen. I've met like so many great people here, so many other producers and engineers and musicians who are, you know, I I think people in this business are, you got to be giving. You're you're really, you know, contributing to a record. You're really um, putting part of yourself in somebody else's life in their, in their music. And that's, that's really, you know, you're, building relationships with every project you do mm-hmm. you're really sharing yourself so um i think that what has been great is all the many uh, other producers engineers musicians manufacturers uh, people that i've met through the years that are on grammy committees and all and to see everybody's uh passion and excitement and um commitment to it is pretty beautiful because yeah. you then realize that just as music might have saved me or transformed my life as a teenager, it pretty much did the same thing with all these other people. So you really have that right. common there. And there's that just a really beautiful bond. Yeah. For a lot of people I talk to, music is their entire life. But I like to talk about work-life balance. So what do you do when you're not working? <laughs> To balance Good out your life. Question. I don't balance it out well <laughs> enough. Um, but uh, no, I, I, I do love art. I, I go to museums and galleries a lot and uh, art auctions and things like that. So I'm always interested in, oh, in uh-huh. new painters. You know, I'm always interested in new sculptors to somebody uh-huh. that's um, fresh and doing different things as well as, you know, uh, Classic uh, artists from, you know, Andy Warhol or whomever it is, Basquiat, you know, things that I love. But So uh, I spend mm-hmm. a lot of time doing that, and that's maybe my escape, you know. Do you have a favorite art gallery? 
Uh, no, not so much. No, um, I, I tend to like a lot of like um, of smaller sort of neighborhood uh, galleries that you mm-hmm. see coming up you know, new scenes coming up. And, you know, often if I'm going to, I don't know, Nashville or Austin or wherever, I'll, I'll go out and check out some things because there'll be inevitably some really great artists that you never heard of before. Mm-hmm. Where's your favorite place to record? Oh, wow. Uh, well, I certainly, uh, I've made Sunset my home, so I love the studios there. They're really classic, uh, 70s studios with Mm -hmm. really beautiful tone and custom-built consoles and a lot of the old school values. Uh, you know, and we're lucky in that in LA, we have places like East West and United and and, uh, Capital that are incredible sounding rooms. Um, I've made uh, four albums or so now at La Fabrique Studios in the south of France Uh that I absolutely love. And for the same reason, there's a number of acoustic environments in that space, as well as a great sounding recording studio that really um, just enliven the sound of an acoustic instrument. Uh, You know, there's nothing like a great sounding acoustic guitar or piano or string section in a room that is is made for it and it just the mm-hmm. tone just blows up it's incredible so um yeah being in a great acoustic space like that uh i grew up in boston and would always as a kid go to boston symphony hall which is one of the uh-huh. classic concert halls in the world and i yeah. just remember like Going in as a kid, you could go into the uh, orchestra's rehearsals in the afternoon. They would let you in uh, free. And, you know, hearing an orchestra, symphony orchestra in an amazing sounding hall, it's like, you know, only equal to being next to a guitar amp with a really great guitar player. It really like your whole body is involved. It's incredible. The first time I saw B.B. King at the Great American Music Hall, Uh and he started playing his guitar, it just... I know that feeling. Yeah. It just kind of overtakes you. Yep. So cool. Okay. Last question. <laughs> I ask everybody and it's, it has to do with food. So this is the scenario. We're going to get together. We're going to go out. Where are we going to go to eat? What am I going to be eating? Cause I don't like making decisions. What am I going to be drinking? What kind of music are we listening to? And what are we talking about? Wow. Uh, we're talking about the future because the present is not so great. I won't go into that any further. Yeah, you fine. know, I, uh, growing up Italian, I kind of had my fill of Italian food for years. And uh-huh. finally, in the last five years or so, I've really enjoyed Italian food again. Um, And that can be something that is uh, just simple Mediterranean food or something that uh, is more involved. Uh, One of my favorite Italian places in LA is Felix down in Venice Beach. Oh, yeah. Uh, It's a really great little restaurant. Outdoor space is beautiful. Uh, Love that place um you know i know tequila isn't uh something that goes with italian food but i i, I do <laughs> i would i would choose tequila okay. uh you know <laughs> I, I like bolder red wines usually like margos uh-huh. and san emilians but uh but but i would probably as a drink i would choose tequila because uh, uh I, I think people loosen up on it i think it's uh, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> definitely one to free people up <laughs> yes okay and what kind of music were you gonna be listening to oh uh i'm not a 
a classic rock guy. I'm not one for the past. I would probably, if I'm listening to anything, it might be something uh, like traditional jazz. Uh, I would listen to, if I ever delve into the past, it's usually for, for jazz. So, you know, it could be anything from Miles Davis or Monk or something like that. Mm-hmm. Okay, that sounds good. I love 50s Miles Davis. Yeah. I could listen best. to anything from the 50s. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much. It's been fun to catch up. It's been a while. Uh, you're welcome. Yeah, it was fun. Absolutely. Yes. And maybe see you in June. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So hopefully I'll see you at NAM. And uh, if you want to in the tech awards, you know who to talk to. Ah. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of One and Done. Don't forget to check out today's show notes and our YouTube channel for more from our guests and subscribe to our KMD Pro weekly resource guide on kmdpro.com. This podcast is produced by Jules Everson and Stephanie Lamont. Our audio engineer is Corey Klotz. We'll see you next time.